today's episode, Artillery of the Napoleonic Wars. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Kevin F. Kiley, author of Artillery of the Napoleonic Wars, A Concise Dictionary, 1792-1815, published March 15, 2021, by Frontline Books. Thank you for speaking with me. That's good. That's good to see you. So first, let's start with uh, how did you get into studying this subject of Napoleonic artillery and writing a, a dictionary on it? Well, I started with the Napoleonic Wars in 1964. I'm old. And uh, after I, I was teaching, I retired from the Marine Corps, and I was an artillery officer. And uh, I was talking to Digby Smith. I hope I can use his name, who's a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were emailing, and he had just written a book, I think Napoleon's Regiments. And uh, he's the one that got me going. And I went to Green Hill, mm-hmm. published my first artillery book. And they said, okay. And I only wanted to do it on the French system. Mm-hmm. And they said, nope, you got to do everybody. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. So they said half French, quarter British, and a quarter everybody else. And I said, okay. And uh, so I spent a year doing the research and the writing. And the book came out really good, mm-hmm. I thought, very well. It was very positively reviewed, like the Journal of the Royal Artillery and some other the First Empire and um, then I did the next Napoleonic book, which was Once There Were Titans, about Napoleon's generals. Mm-hmm. That was in 2007. And then I always wanted to do a volume two for artillery because the first one is just about field artillery. Mm-hmm. So in 2015, the second one came out, which is uh, Siege, Garrison, and Naval Artillery. Mm-hmm. And the publisher basically said, what do you want to do next? So I told him the dictionary, and he goes, what's going to be in there that's not in the first two? Mm-hmm. and I said a lot <laughs> and uh, it took me three years to do the book mm-hmm. I mean it's just there's a ton of material in it they wanted to put a complete dictionary and I said no I said somebody will find an error and go looking for it if you say that mm-hmm. I, and they said well how about concise I said okay Yeah. and uh, it's got 81 illustrations most of them are period line drawings mm-hmm and there's 15 period color plates. Mm-hmm. And they actually said, we can do those in color. What do you think? And I said, yes, that would be good. Mm-hmm. So they did. I mean, they really put a lot of effort in this book. Okay. And, and uh, the editor was com- really outstanding. I am a terrible proofreader. <laughs> but they did That's their work. That's how it got there. Okay. So considering there is a, a lot of material to work with, how did you... Um... How did you, even though it's, what, over 600 pages, how did you um, narrow down the focus? Was there something specific you can talk about that you uh, focused on? Well, the main thrust of it was uh, technical artillery terms. Mm -hmm. And artillery really is a neglected part of the period. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of current material on it. You have to go through the old manuals. You know, there's French, Spanish, German, Russian, not so much. Uh, I was lucky. I've taken Russian. I can still read it. I, I have to use a dictionary. Mm-hmm. It's really slow going. 
my French isn't too bad, but I can't translate English to French. I can do the other way around. Mm-hmm. And uh, French is the most. I mean, you just have a ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, then the Royal Artillery, there's a ton of stuff on the Brits. And they use a lot of French terms. And uh, I basically, when I did the first artillery book, uh, I had a choice to have traveled to Carlisle and go to West Point and probably the Library of Congress, mm-hmm. or I can buy the stuff. And the cost was relatively the same, and then I'd have it. Yeah. So I bought a lot of manuals. I've got over over 100 artillery references. Okay. So, so first then, let me, uh, let me ask about when you mentioned the difference between field artillery and, and all the others you listed. Can you, uh, talk about the major differences there? Yeah. The field artillery goes with the army in the, in the field mm-hmm. on campaign. And generally speaking, the long tubes, the long guns are not larger than 12 pounder. Mm-hmm. And the pounder refers to the weight of the solid shot. Mm-hmm. They have to be mobile or they're not going. The army's got to be able to haul it. And that's the stuff that's deployed on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. The other stuff is, well, siege is using sieges in there, usually 16, 18, and 24 pounders. They're big. Mm-hmm. You can actually see some at Yorktown, some of the French stuff. And then you have two types of howitzers. That's the short-barreled weapon mm-hmm. that can shoot at a higher elevation than a long gun. Long gun basically shoots in a flat trajectory. Okay. The main target is people. Of the field artillery? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what that's you shoot at first. Depends on the country you're talking about. Uh, the French figured that out. They went through a big reform period after they lost big in the Seven Years' War. Mm-hmm. And they had the most modern artillery system in 1789. Mm-hmm. The most modern of the period, though, is the British, because they had better designed gun carriages and limbers and caissons, you know, to pull the tube or the carry the ammunition mm-hmm. but that didn't evolve until seven mid 1790s but uh, when you talk about artillery they usually usually see in the manuals the term system mm-hmm. and an artillery system is everything from the equipment the tools the doctrine the people the horses everything if you can get a coordinated integrated system you're way above the power curve Prussians never had one during the whole period. Oh, really? No. The Russians revamped theirs, and uh, I gave them the most improved grade of the period. Hmm. They uh, went into soul-searching after 1807 because they'd been whooped so bad. Mm -hmm. But the Prussians, uh, even during their reform period, their artillery was not as improved as it could have been. The uh, officers were not well-educated. The Russian artillery officers were not Mm well-educated. And a lot of people say, well, they they went to school. Yeah, but if you compare the different technical schools, um, the British, the Austrians, and the Russians modeled their artillery schools on the French. Okay. So did we. I mean, West Point was modeled on the Ecole Polytechnique, and they were an artillery school. Hmm. Okay. And uh, the Different arguments, the different discussions, especially in the French system, are interesting. And some of the stuff they do, you wonder, why did they do that? Mm-hmm. But Napoleon, being an artilleryman, was really involved in how he wanted to run. And they formed, they always had an artillery reserve with the army mm-hmm. that they could employ where they needed it to, to move it. Prussians never did. British artillery was excellent, but just wasn't enough of it. 
Okay. And Wellington really didn't know how to use artillery. Sometimes I wonder if, um, and maybe people have written on this, but did Napoleon, did part of his rise stem from the fact that he was an expert in the leading edge, leading technology of warfare at the time, basically? Well, he came to fame at Toulon in 1793, and it was because of his use of artillery. Mm -hmm. He went from captain to general of brigade. Mm -hmm. So since Napoleon was an artillerist, you know, on one hand, it seems like because he was, he, he had his uh, military success, he was able, he, that gave him the opportunity to advance. But I also wonder if, since he was a master of such an important, maybe the leading edge combat arm of the time, that that continued to, to give him the success that he had. Is that part of it? I mean, the, the French artillery arm, even after Russia, Mm -hmm. was excellent i mean they lost a lot of stuff in russia they uh he rebuilt the arm from veterans in spain and naval artillerymen mm -hmm. that he brought over to the army i mean uh, he tried to replace the uh gribbleville artillery system in uh, 1802 1803 mm -hmm. and uh some of the generals on the artillery committee didn't like it mm. and the new system of the year 11 uh, never replaced the Gribbleville system. Mm -hmm. uh, the new six-pounder was they liked that one kind of, sort of, and that was supposed to replace the old eight- and four-pounders. But the eight-pounder was an excellent field piece, which the horse artillery preferred. Mm -hmm. So in Spain, it was they used the Gribbleville system, and it was convenient because that's the system the Spanish used. Mm-hmm. But in 1809, half the army was still using the Gribbleville system. Mm -hmm. So what they actually did was they'd used the new gun tubes on the old carriages because the new carriages weren't that good. They weren't as well built or designed. And mm -hmm. the new ancillary vehicles, the limbers, the caissons, the forges, really never came into full production. So it was the old system until uh, it was replaced in 1827 by the new valet system, which looked like the British system. Hmm. Okay. I'm speaking with Kevin Kiley, author of Artillery of the Napoleonic Wars. You can find more information about his work on Amazon or on the Frontline Books website. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Can you talk about where, where these different countries, um, obtain their their artillery from you know the various pieces um, they made their own they designed them and cast them mm -hmm. i mean if you look at an austrian a french a british and a russian field piece of the same caliber they look a little different mm -hmm. and uh the way they um for strength of the tube because they're made out of bronze mm -hmm. which is copper and tin 90 usually 90 percent to 10 percent and uh it was how many pounds of tube to pound a ball. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, you would standardize that for each caliber. Okay. And then you'd also have to calculate the windage, which you were going to allow, which is the distance between the inside of the bore and the round. Mm -hmm. The main advantage of the Gribbleville system is they standardized everything. Mm -hmm. On the three field piece calibers, the windage was the same. Okay. You go, you go to the Austrian system, it wasn't. And one of the big innovations was originally, as in before the Seven Years' War, 
in the 1750s and 60s, a gun tube was cast around a core. Okay. And so you basically have a bore when you came out of the casting process. They have to ream it out. But that didn't give you uniform bores. Okay. And they may not may or may not be straight. Uh. What the Gribbeville system did, in conjunction with the gun founder, the Swiss Moritz and his son, is they cast the gun tube solid and then used a uniform boring machine to bore out the tube. Okay. So then you'd have the same standard for each gun tube but no gun no two gun tubes shoot the same they hmm. still don't oh wow they will oh no they don't we never we had you had to you actually had a machine that you would calibrate that to make sure that rounds would land in a straight line mm-hmm. which was a real pain in the rear end but with all the modern technology and the you know the way they make artillery tubes now it's still you can have uniform windage uniform size and no two tubes that you cast will shoot exactly the same. Can you talk about, um, I've seen or I've read of situations where, where guns will explode, where they'll overheat. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about that problem? You have to shoot a lot of bullets to overheat a gun tube. Mm-hmm. See, today they have a temperature gauge on it. And I never saw one move much in all the rounds I shot. And I thought shot thousands of rounds. Mm-hmm as a battery officer and a battery commander mm-hmm. and a poorly cast tube could explode on you or crack. Mm-hmm. But what they, they did is they would look for what they called honeycombing inside the bore. Mm-hmm. That was a weakness. And they have a tool that would do that. Uh, Gribbevol, it's called a searcher. Mm-hmm. Gribbevol developed one that was very modern in appearance which was easier to find flaws in the casting. If they found flaws, they just remelt it and do it again. Oh, okay. In the arsenals, but uh, a tube exploding is not happy for the gun crew. Mm-hmm. So, um, where? So, again, talking about where the artillery was was made. Were there centers of production for each of the countries? Like major oh, there were foundries. Major foundries. Yeah, they do foundries. Mm-hmm. They, it was a uh, process. It's basically an artillery factory. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the main French ones was at Douai. Mm-hmm. And that's where the first French artillery school also was. So they kind of co-located everything mm-hmm. because artillery officers were taught how to design, cast, and produce all mm-hmm. the artillery stuff. Huh, okay. And then uh, you'd have uh, Gribbleville designated I think 177 artillery officers as inspectors, quality control guys, okay. and they'd be in the foundries. And they said, no, I can't do that. And I've got four drawings, which are in the book, and picked them up about five, six years ago on Amazon of all places, and they're extra large pages. Mm-hmm. And it's the design pictures for the system. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the, I mean, they even measured the bolts. Mm-hmm. You could take parts from every uh, armory, foundry, or factory and assemble a gun carriage Whoops. or a limber mm-hmm. because they all fit no matter where they were produced. So where uh, I'm curious where the, the main foundries were also in um, Britain, Spain, uh, Prussia, and Russia. I don't know. I'd have to go look it up. Okay. Okay. But did they have single single mm-hmm. spots? They didn't spread well, it out? Well, there'd be more spots. Mm-hmm. I, I mean – the smart ones had more foundries. Okay. okay. They, they could have just one. I mean, like the Soviets had one big tank factory. Mm-hmm. 
but um, usually they spread them out. But okay. don't quote me on that. Oops. Okay. Um, okay. Fair enough. That I'd have to look up. Mm-hmm. So what about uh, the naval artillery? You did mention the siege and, and field, but uh, can you mention the naval artillery at this yeah, time? Yeah, naval artillery usually was cast in iron. Mm-hmm. Now, iron is a lighter metal than bronze, mm-hmm. but it's brittle. That's where you usually didn't have iron field pieces because they would explode. Mm-hmm. Even in the American Civil War, you had the, the parrots that were cast iron, I think. Mm-hmm. And they had a, the crews didn't like them because they had a tendency to explode mm-hmm. at the breach. Okay. The uh, three-inch ordnance rifle that was a horse artillery piece was the favorite. Mm-hmm. For many, because it was it was a very simple design. It there's it's just nice, smooth little field piece. Mm-hmm. So so um, tell me um some of the perhaps some of the the more interesting entries in your in your dictionary that uh, that maybe you'd like to point out. Well, one thing I did is I went and found a selection of like, there's engineers in it too. Mm-hmm. Okay, I just don't put it in the title because it'd be too long. Um, cause they worked hand in hand. They were both technical arms and artillery officers had to know how to run a siege. Also, uh, one of the favorite things I found while doing the dictionary is in Eastern Spain was the most successful duo of an engineer commander and an artillery commander because mm-hmm. they took all the cities together and they're the ones that ran. Suchet was the army commander and they're the ones that ran everything. And, uh, that artillery general of Valais, he's the one that brought the new system in in 1827. Mm-hmm. He's smart guys. And uh, people don't really realize, you know, they see a name and, yeah, okay, fine. But they don't realize the experience level of these guys. And they were young. Mm-hmm. I mean, they weren't real old. Some of them were older. But most of them were, you could have a, for example, a 37-year-old corps commander mm-hmm. in the Grand Armée. And you'd have a 37-year-old captain. Mm-hmm. And commanding one of the companies. It just depends who got promoted when. And the revolution really mixed things up. Mm-hmm. So it does seem, though, that the uh, the revolution did allow a bit of meritocracy, that it allowed more meritocracy than maybe you saw in the other countries' armies. The cream floated to the top. The, ones, the, the survivors of the revolutionary armies, um, they're hard people. You had one French marshal that was wounded 34 times hmm. from everything from a bayonet to a artillery round. Mm-hmm. And most of them were wounded at least three or four times, mm-hmm. sometimes in one action. It just depended. Okay. But uh, the ones that survived the revolution, because revolution was a mess mm-hmm. politically and militarily. The only stable uh, institution in France was the army hmm. okay? because the succession of governments were basically corrupt. Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't pay the army. Oh, okay. They seldom supplied them. You, the commander was on his own in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And they say, Oh, well the, they lived off the land. Well, they had to, they'd starved to death. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm trying to understand Artillery is so hard to move. You know, we're talking about, you know, using horses and stuff. Um, but it still seems like artillery, you're really restricted in where, you, where and how to use artillery, um, in Europe. There's certain, there's a lot of mountainous areas, you know, a lot of places hard to traverse. So I'm just curious about that issue. 
Well, you can't use the regular field pieces in mountain warfare. You have to use you use smaller calibers. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'd have specifically designed mountain artillery pieces or how, long guns and howitzers. Mm-hmm. Um, put them on sleds, sledges. Mm-hmm. When Napoleon crossed the Alps in 1800, they hauled out tree trunks, and that's where they put the gun tubes. Yeah. And then they, they hauled them. Okay. They dragged them. It's manpower. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a if a gun team, the horses, were having a hard time, the artillerymen would pull with the horses. Hmm. Wow. You know, it, it, uh, in our own Civil War, that happened at Little Round Top at Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. They, a general wanted a artillery battery up there. Have you ever been to Gettysburg? I have, but not in a while. The backside of Round Top is steep mm-hmm. and studded with trees. Mm-hmm. And he told them, go. So it in the narrative I read, which is The Guns at Gettysburg by Fairfax Downey, excellent little book, mm-hmm. the troops got out, dismounted, whatever they were doing, and they were pulling with the horses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I smile because if the horses are having trouble, you know, I guess you you add your, your, your strength to it, but, you know, that's a fraction of what the horses can generate, it seems. Yeah, but the horse, it's just like... Uh, in a gun team, if a horse pair, one's killed, the other one mourns if mm. they've been with them a long time. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, they're, it's just like a big dog. Huh. Interesting. I started riding when I was 10, so I know a little bit about horses. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had dogs. There's similarities. Mm-hmm. But they know you when you come back. And you have to take the, the important thing when you have a unit with horses in it, you have to have horse mastership. Mm-hmm. You got to know how to feed them. You got to know how much water they're going to get. You got to keep them clean. Mm-hmm. Um, and on campaign, you'd have to adjust the harness because they're going to lose weight. Mm. Okay. And uh, sometimes you, when a horse got killed, you have to cut them out of the harness so you can okay. keep moving. Mm-hmm. Did, did um, I would imagine then that the horses sort of got, were trained in a sense, like almost to the point where sometimes they might know what to do next. Like, you know, when they hear certain commands and such? There are documented cases of the horses listening to the trumpet mm-hmm. call because they had a trumpet call for everything, mm-hmm. and they just do it hmm. because that's they, they remembered it, mm-hmm. and they were trained. The steadiest horse pair are the wheelers, the ones that are attached right to the limber in the back. Mm-hmm. And then you have a swing team or a lead team. Um, the standard foot artillery gun team was four horses horse artillery it was six so you'd have lead swing and wheelers and then one was mounted how long um how quickly once once you know you know a team was ordered to position once they reached that position how how quickly could they set their their guns up so that they were ready to fire a minute or less if they were a good gun crew Mm -hmm. it doesn't take long okay there's a lot made in some books that the uh, the eight and twelve pounders the French had, there were two sets of trunnions. You know the the dip where you put the mm-hmm. field the gun tube in mm-hmm. that the trunnions sit on. Mm-hmm. They'd have a traveling pair and a um, firing set. Okay. And you put the cap square over it. Well, you had to change that because when they were limbered up, they're in the traveling position, and gun tubes aren't light. And there is a procedure in the manual how they would lift the tube and they do it while you're limbered mm-hmm. and then you unlimber the gun. 
and the notation in the manual was it took as long to the, the system is called encastrament. That procedure took as long as unlimbering, so it didn't take long. Mm-hmm. You know, unlimbering, you just pick it up, they move the limber out of the way, and you put the trail down, mm-hmm. and they uh, then you lay the piece on the target. Mm-hmm. And then the um, the pro the, the what's the uh, the materials needed the the parts or or the different aspects of loading the gun and readying it. You know the charge and the ball and and what are the different things needed to to get the to gun fire the piece? Yes, to fire it. Yes, a uh, cartridge consisted of the bullet, mm-hmm. the powder, and a sabot, mm-hmm. which was um, the wooden thing that helps you seat the round. It evens it out in the tube, okay. in the bore, and then that's rammed, and the powder is under the touch hole, the vent. Okay, and they take a pricker. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yay long iron, and they pierce the bag. Then you put the fuse in, and then you light it off, and it goes bang. Okay. And you had to get out of the way because the recoil mechanism was the whole piece. Mm-hmm. It would move to the rear. And then you had to push it back in, battery, relay it to fire again. Mm-hmm. The sustained rate for a 12-pounder was one round a minute. Okay. And for lighter pieces, it was two. And for modern howitzers, the standard sustained rate is two rounds a minute. Mm-hmm. And and the, so, what do you call again the, the the piece that goes in that has this you know the, the wooden part and the, the charge? Sabot. Sabot. The whole thing is a cartridge. It's mm-hmm. one piece. It comes out of the caisson mm-hmm. as one one round. Um, siege artillery, though, was separate loading. Put in the powder, and then you put in the bullet. Okay. Because it's it's bigger. And is a C-bot, can you sort of describe it? You know, is it like a, a, a solid mass or is it kind of? It's a, it's a round, they called it, well, it's a shoe mm-hmm. It fits on the bottom of the cartridge. Mm-hmm. And that helps seat the round. It fits it in the tube so it doesn't move. Okay. Okay. And so once and it's, it's, once it's fired, do you have to remove any, is there any residue or debris to take out? You have a worm. Mm-hmm. which is on a long pole, and it's a curly cute piece of metal. And it goes in, and you take that out, and then you uh, take the wad, which is on either alone or on the other end of the rammer, and it's you dip it in water, and you clean out the tube. You don't want to put a bullet in there that hasn't been swabbed because it could ignite. Hmm. Okay, okay. And could you time the fuse? When you, when you put your, your fuse in, could you time it at all, or was it basically touch and go? Well, the fuse... It, there's two kind of fuses. The one that goes in the vent, mm-hmm. and that's it's got very fine powder. It doesn't take long to ignite. Mm-hmm. The other one has to be cut, and those are put in uh, common shell, which long guns did not fire. Mm-hmm. There, there was a howitzer round. Howitzer didn't shoot round shot either. They both would shoot canister. They on a personnel round, but the common shell, the one with the fuse, it would go out and explode in the air on the ground. Mm-hmm. Had to be cut by one of the gunners, usually the bombardier. Okay. Okay. So, so how does that work? Does it, so is it loaded like a normal shot would be, except it also has this fuse that's lit? That would be separate loading ammunition. You put the powder in first because mm-hmm. there is a uh, chamber at the bottom of a howitzer board or a mortar mm-hmm. also. And you put the powder in there and then you put the bullet in and the fuse is ignited when the piece is fired. Ah, okay, okay. 
Oh. And it may work and it may not. Oh, okay. So you might still have a, a when it lands, the fuse might be dead, but it might still be a a, a shell filled with with gunpowder or whatever material. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Would it be reusable at that point or is it basically done? I wouldn't reuse it. Yeah. Yeah. They might take the fuse out and if it didn't go boom, you're fine, but it's a dud. You got to watch duds. Mm hmm. Okay. Went to a Civil War reenactment one time, long time ago. It was at Manassas. Mm hmm. And this old duffer in a Confederate uniform was had these, you know, different rounds that they had recovered from the battlefield. Mm hmm. One had a fuse in it. Huh. Oh boy. And I looked at the buddy I was with, and he goes, hey, it's not going to blow up. And he started whacking on it, so we left. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. That's... That boy was dumb. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, no, you just don't do that. What's that? You just don't do that. No, no. Um, Dud's a dud. Yeah. So I noticed you're, you mentioned the years 1827, so it sounds like this dictionary in a sense, goes a little past 1815. Yeah, when it goes into the, uh, what happened next with the French system, I did. Because mm-hmm. it's appropriate, mm-hmm. I thought. Okay, okay. Well, let me talk about it. Let me ask about how you did your research. Obviously, you've been working on this for many years, this topic. Um, what, what sort of, um, you said you bought a bunch of books, you have a lot of um, manuals and such. What other research have you done for this? archives and such i haven't gone to an archive i haven't gone to you know never went to carlisle Mm -hmm. um now because of google books you have more stuff that's been that you can download that's put on there artillery manuals Mm -hmm. uh, regimental histories i probably have a thousand books that i've downloaded Mm -hmm. and that's one place and then you find things like uh, military dictionaries Mm -hmm. and some are good and some are not if you're going to do subjects like this and you're not fluent, but you're familiar with foreign language, you better get a dictionary. Mm-hmm. And military French is different from regular French. Mm-hmm. When I did uh, the second artillery book, the manuscript reviewer came back and he goes, I use the French word F-R-A-I-S-E-S phrase. Mm-hmm. And that is... In siege warfare, it's uh, pointed stakes. Okay. And he goes, that's not right. It means strawberries. Well, yeah, it means strawberries too. <laughs> so that was an easy question to answer. But, mm-hmm. you know, I looked it up still because he, he questioned it. And he's a, the reviewer was a bona fide historian, very good guy. Mm-hmm. Don't know him, but I'm familiar with his work. Mm-hmm. But memoirs, um, credible secondary works. Mm-hmm. Uh, artillery manuals, some biographies, you can find things in it. You know, you, you could have a book that you never quote, but it's, that's why you use bibliography and not work cited. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could take one thing out of it. Okay. And then, uh, when I did the first book, I found an American artillery manual from 1809 written by a French artillery officer who fought for the U.S. in the revolution and stayed. Mm-hmm three volumes and it's a compilation or taken from a lot of French manuals and a lot of English manuals are in it. It's an Mm -hmm. excellent reference. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way I look at it, if you're going to, instead of paraphrasing how a gun crew works, Mm -hmm. quote the procedure, 
Uh, from okay. a manual. Mm-hmm. To me, that's easier. Um, makes more sense. And it's easier for the reader. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I called, and it was republished by uh, Greenwood Press. So I called them, mm-hmm. and I said, can I do this? And she goes, you can copy the whole book if you want to. We didn't copyright it. <laughs> okay. So that was kind of, that is a, I used it a lot in the dictionary. Mm-hmm. Because it's, uh, at least volume one is online now. Okay. I'm speaking with Kevin Kiley, author of Artillery of the Napoleonic Wars. You can find more information about his work on Amazon or on the Frontline Books website. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. You mentioned before that field artillery, the main purpose was to um, to hit troops. But I always thought that, uh, I guess, the first thing would be counter-battery, that you want to take out the enemy batteries first and then take out their troops. Is that... The French taught hit hit their troops first. Mm-hmm. You only shoot at their artillery if there's no other targets or they're hurting your infantry worse than you're hurting theirs. Counter-battery was expensive, time-consuming, and may or may not be effective. Really? Hmm. Yeah, the way the French did it was... Say they had two artillery companies going after how many of the enemies they would take all 12 to 16 guns and they take out the first piece. Mm-hmm. Then they move to the next piece. Then they move to the next piece. And it, you don't always hit on the first round. The French weren't supposed to fire anything over 1,050 yards. Hmm. Okay. Because these things are relatively short range. It's nothing like today. And it's all direct fire. Even a howitzer is direct fire because you've got to see the target to hit it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, they're going to fire inside a walled farm, but you got to see the farm to hit it. Okay. And uh, howitzers had an incendiary capability, which was helpful. Hmm. Okay. How, how, can you describe or explain that a little more? Yeah. The, the shell would explode and set things on fire. Okay. Was it because the metal was hot and, like, say, if it em- embeds into something, it would heat it up? Well, or? It's full of powder, mm-hmm. and it broke up into about 25 pieces of iron, you know, and it was hot. Mm-hmm. And flames would come, you know, it, just like on TV, it explodes. Okay. Although they show round shot exploding, which didn't happen. Round shot would bounce and roll, mm-hmm. and that's when it was dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, they could you could double the range of a long gun if the ground was hard enough for a ricochet fire. And oh. the thing would just bound. And if you're in the way, you're kind of done. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's like a shot put. That's what you're shooting is it's solid iron ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine if it were bouncing around, would it be taking out people's legs? Would it be that low on the ground or bouncing yeah, out? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's one memoir by a French guardsman. Mm-hmm. And they had to stand and take an artillery bombardment at the Battle of Essling in 1809. And he thought he had lost his arm because he got hit. Mm-hmm. And he looked down, and it was his buddy's brains uh, over his arm. That hit him that hard. Well, if uh, New Orleans, the big killer at New Orleans in 1815 was American artillery. Mm-hmm. And the British said that, and the way they figured it out is you had a lot of pieces all over the battlefield, not whole bodies. Oh. It's nasty. Yeah. Hmm. It's a, it would take some courage to stand up to something like that. That's discipline. Yeah. Yeah, discipline. There was one French 
general, his name was Dorsen, he would actually, in front of the unit, he would turn around while they're undergoing artillery fire mm-hmm. and not look behind him. Mm-hmm. And he would clo- order close ranks as men were falling. Mm-hmm. And the guy who uh, talked about that, he was an infantry captain. He said, I tried to do that, and I couldn't. you got to look behind you. <laughs> you just Because yeah. you can see the rounds coming, huh. especially when they start to ricochet. Mm-hmm. But they're too fast to dodge at all, even though you can see them. No, you can't dodge a bullet. Yeah, yeah. Um, did, uh, and this uh, may be a little bit before, well, it's a little bit before the time period of your book, but the were there French observers at the American Revolution? Did they... Did any, did they see anything there in the use of artillery that they might have taken to France? No. no. The, uh, they were well established as artillerymen and the new Gribbleville system was already there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Gribbleville system was brought over. It was used at Yorktown. Okay. Siege and field pieces. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the French knew that, but they sent people over to help. Mm-hmm. And one of them was one of Gribbleville's guys and he was really stupid. He got, he drowned in a river. Mm-hmm. His name was de Coudre. Mm-hmm. He, he made everybody mad. <laughs> a nobleman? Probably. Yeah. I don't think that was the issue. The, the issue was he was just a jerk. Mm-hmm. A knowledgeable one, but a jerk. Ah, okay. So what did, um, and again, I'm straying outside of the, the book, but since you've studied artillery so much, I've, I, I'm under the impression that, uh, Washington was, was made good use of artillery. Is that, uh, is that, true or maybe an exaggeration do you have any comments or ideas on that he made knox's artillery chief which was and knox had learned his artillery from a book Mm -hmm. muller's treatise and knox was an excellent artillery chief Mm -hmm. so he knew exactly what he was doing Mm -hmm. okay and he worked well with the french Mm -hmm. at yorktown okay so um so then with this dictionary you had mentioned before about you know the ratios of the different countries um Maybe I should double check. Is this just, is this one? Yeah, it covers all countries. Um, yes. As again, many as I can figure in. Okay. I even have Denmark in there. Oh, really? Yeah. And How, the Turks. And the Turks as well? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, not overboard, but. Was there, which countries, so obviously the French prized artillery, but were there countries that, that just kind of did it, but didn't really take it too seriously. I know you said the Prussians didn't do a good job of organizing their systems, but that was because of Frederick. Mm-hmm. Frederick the Great treated his artillerymen and engineers as second-class citizens, mm-hmm. and it reflected in how everybody else looked at them. Mm-hmm. And they actually, in 1806, had more field pieces than the French did. Oh wow! But they didn't use them well. Huh. And yet everyone talks about the, the mighty Prussian military, but it sounds like they were deficient on this. Very important. Uh, mighty would count after. They took the lessons to heart when the wars were over. Ah, okay. The outstanding Prussian artillerymen of the period, I want to say it's Holtzman mm-hmm. or Holtzman. He lost a hand at Ligny in 1815, but he took the lessons home. When they fought the French in 1870, they had a superior artillery arm. Hmm, okay. So the French... Precedence were, went down in the 1850s. Okay. People uh, were catching up. Was it was that basically because of, it sounds like the main change was just focusing on training and creating a, a good system. It sounds like everyone sort of had the, 
well, I guess the equipment, I guess there was an issue there too, how well you made your, your cannon, your artillery. It depends on what you, if you kept up on the foreign innovations, small things like an iron axle instead mm-hmm. of a wooden one, mm-hmm. um, brass housings on the wheel hubs mm-hmm. that would reduce friction, made it easier to move the field piece mm-hmm. by hand. Cause that was one of the drills you did. You moved by hand if you had to. Okay. Cause horses are big targets mm-hmm. and, uh, canister rounds. The French did experiments on canister. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks canister was full of musket balls. Musket lead is the low melting point. The French experimented with it in the 1760s and you didn't get all the little balls going down range. You got a big lead mass that melted together in the tube. Yeah. So they went to iron balls mm-hmm. in two sizes. It worked. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of experimentation. Uh, stuff worked. Most of it worked. Some of it didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, Gribbeville did not militarize the French artillery train. You know, the guys that pulled the guns and they didn't introduce horse artillery. And one of his subordinates goes, might be a good idea if we did horse artillery. He goes, not yet. We made too many people mad already with all the new mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. So we'll do it later. But it was French horse artillery came in in 1792. The Prussians had it seven years war. Mm-hmm. See, they were the initial in the 1740s. They were the most modern artillery system. Mm-hmm. And in the war of the Austrian succession, the Austrians got their hindquarters handed to them artillery wise that way. And Austria was still a guild. So after the uh, war of the Austrian succession, mm-hmm. General Liechtenstein who was not an artillery officer, used his personal fortune to develop a new system in Austria, mm-hmm. which was excellent. And the Prussians were surprised by that in the Seven Years' War. And Gribbevoll had seen the Prussian artillery. He, had, he was an exchange officer. He was seconded to the Austrian artillery in the Seven Years' War. So he served with that, and he saw all this stuff. And he went home, and he said, we're doing a new system. Mm-hmm. We're going to, he had all these ideas and they did it, planned it, implemented it. It was actually tested in 1765, uh, suppressed because they made some of the older artillery officers angry. Mm-hmm. And then it was finally reintroduced in the 1770s. Mm-hmm. That's the one they went to war with. So it sounds like a lot of, a lot of the deficiencies in a country's artillery seem to be stemming from per, uh, personal, f- from leadership, you know, whether someone wants to make it happen or not. And conservatism. As far as just doing it the old way, not changing. Yeah. Okay. This way is fine. We don't need to do anything new. Mm-hmm. And people are saying, yeah, you do. You, I've seen it. You haven't. And they don't want to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But were there other limiting. F- what you hear now. In yeah. Different fields. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think people are also scared of, you know, why, why change? You know, this new thing might fail when we have our proven, you know, our system that's proven to some extent, you know, some people don't want to be the ones who change and then it, it flops. Correct. Um, but where there are other limiting factors as far as what, how well a country could develop its artillery, like something funding. that was that funding, okay. funding, mm-hmm. it's expensive. Mm hmm. It's not cheap. It's not like making a musket. Mm-hmm. And so, pardon? It, it seems that uh, some of these countries would have difficulty getting the raw material. Like it might not be accessible to them. 
nobody had that I found had a shortage because they couldn't make it. Okay. I mean, bronze, copper is pretty common, tin, so is tin, mm-hmm. and iron is just about everywhere. The United States had a literally tons of iron, and that's what they used back then, was iron field pieces. Mm-hmm. The U.S. adopted the Gribbleville system in 1809, but they never adopted the gun tubes. They did the carriages and vehicles and they, because they weren't going to use bronze. They were going to use iron. Mm-hmm. And they had a bunch of field pieces left over from the revolution. They still worked. Mm-hmm. And it seems that I sort of want to ask, you know, for, for the Napoleonic Wars, the French Wars, you know, I, I guess artillery was a major factor in in every major battle. I mean, you can't, there's, you know, there's no, no place where artillery wasn't important. Is that correct? As a supporting arm, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, important maybe it was a factor, mm-hmm. I'd say. Um, the big change in artillery tactics came in 1807 when uh, the French artillery chief of the First Corps decided to take the entire artillery complement with his corps commander's permission. And he got up within 120 yards of the Russian center and just blew it out. Hmm. And that happened more often than not afterwards by the French. The Russians never did that. Mm-hmm. Um, British never really could. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had, if it wasn't, they had to use the Portuguese artillery in Spain because they didn't have enough. Mm-hmm. And the British artillery has always been excellent. And their horse artillery was excellent. Mm-hmm. So, so was there, so it's a, so there were no battles that were primarily determined by artillery. Are you saying that it was always just a very important supporting arm but no. where they were used? It, after Friedland in 1807 with the French, it became an equal combat arm. Okay, okay. I mean, they just um, – Friedland was – you could say it was decided by artillery. Mm-hmm. Uh, the concentration of artillery at Borodino in 1812 and Wagram in 1809 mm-hmm. and Lutzen in 1813 – and Ligny in 1815, mm-hmm. artillery was a big factor, mm-hmm. if not a deciding factor. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the boss was an artillery officer. This, this this question will probably sound ignorant, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, you know, when you defeat your enemies, then why not just take away all their artillery? You know, just strip them of that so that the next time around <laughs> they can't use it against you. Well, the Prussians lost... I don't know how many field pieces in a fortress artillery in 1806. Mm-hmm. And you don't give it back mm-hmm. once you capture it. I right. mean, the French lost all, almost all their artillery in 1812, mm. but they can always make more. Okay. It depends on what they want to do. It's One little tough. footnote, if I could add it. Mm-hmm. Um, the War of 1812, ours, is a fascinating little war. And in 1814, when... The American left division invaded the Niagara Peninsula. Mm-hmm. The battles there, the American artillery battalion, which was the only artillery battalion that was used as a battalion during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, they were complimented by the British after the battles. And they said, we thought you were French. Mm-hmm. They thought they thought they actually had French artillery officers in the field. They went, no, mm-hmm. that that is a, the epitome of artillery compliments. We thought you were French. Huh. Huh. So what, so what aspects of that, what, what is the French, like if someone were, were facing off against the French, what, what, what particular things would, 
would you be experiencing that would make you think, wow, that must be the French, you know, accuracy, speed, you know, yes, which, oh. speed and accuracy are the two biggies mm-hmm. and maneuver is the next one. Okay. Okay. Hmm. What, uh, what did you come across at least for this dictionary? What did you come across that most surprised you? If anything did, <laughs> I probably can't say this on an interview. It's one of the terms that I found that I use kind of tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. but it's a real artillery term. It's the pit at the bottom of a furnace, you know, when you heat shot or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's called an ash hole. <laughs> okay. I had to make sure I spelled it right in the dictionary. So I, but that's what it is. If that's what it is. I mean, and that's the term. Mm-hmm. And just that co- was surprising to me. <laughs> Now, are you saying that's the a, a British term or is the is no? The that's term? French. That's a French term. No, it's every no. That's an English term. Mm-hmm. That's from the Tussauds manual. Okay. I was just sitting there going, "You got to be kidding me!" <laughs> um, and the other one, which I already knew about, but we thought you were French, was uh, that stuck? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, what um, was there a particular issue? that you were trying to come to a conclusion on or get an answer for that perhaps you still don't have an answer um, and you really wish you did, or maybe you did figure it out finally, but it just took a lot of time. There's no conclusion because it's a dictionary. Mm -hmm. But any terms or any, any of your entries? Well, the most fascinating ones are the people, Mm -hmm. the general officers. Mm -hmm. And you can't put them all in there because there's just too many. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think I've got about around 200, and I tried to pick the best ones, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that was really interesting is the reflection, introspection the Russians undertook after 1807, because mm. they had to fix what didn't work. Yeah, that's after that. One, after they, they just got whipped mm-hmm. for two years, and uh, they stopped counter battery as a primary mission. Mm-hmm. They tried to do away with regimental guns, the ones that accompanied the infantry all the time, because that's a waste of uh, assets, mm-hmm. finite assets. Mm-hmm. But they took more artillery into the field than anybody else did. Hmm. Are you saying after after 18? 18- no, that, that was total. But after they, their organization improved, the education improved, uh, the organization improved, uh, officer training Finally, after 1807, mm-hmm. got better. But uh, that's why I said before that that's the most improved artillery organization during the wars. Who spearheaded that effort for the change? I think you might have said his name. Uh, oh. There was a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sievers was one. Kutusayev was, I probably pronounced that wrong, was another. Mm-hmm. He got killed aboard, you know. Um, real young guy. The uh, problem with the Russians on officers was they were promoted because of who they were, not what they knew. Sometimes, not always. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yermolov was another one. Yermolov is a really interesting guy. But they never overcame the lack of education and training for the officer corps, mm-hmm. in my opinion. A lot of people don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I still like we thought you were French. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, that's that's cool. Who, and this is probably, this, maybe it's very subjective, but 
at the tactical, operational, and strategic level, who would you say uh, among all of these individuals were the best artillerists in French. each of those? What's that? French. But the individuals. Oh, you, individuals? Yeah. Well, one of the things that's usually not talked about is the artillery had more assigned to them than just artillery. Uh, usually the pontoneers in the army belong to the artillery in everybody's army. Mm-hmm. And artillery officers would be in command of it. Uh, the best artillery officers in the French service were Eble, Saint-Armand, mm-hmm. Drouot. Uh, Drouot did the same thing at Lutzen in 1813 that Saint-Armand did at Friedland in 1807 with twice the number of guns. Mm-hmm. I mean, their dictum was usually get up close and shoot fast. Hmm. Okay. And uh, Napoleon believed the best generals were artillerymen. Okay. Okay. It didn't always hold true, but I don't think you're going to find a better French general than Dubu. Okay. Okay. He was a cavalry officer. It seems that, I mean, if, if the dictum of artillery was moved fast and close to the enemy, it seems like a cavalry officer might have the right attitude or the right mindset to do that. If they knew how to use their artillery. Right, right. Because hmm. the French cavalry had artillery attached to them also. Mm-hmm. They didn't use it well, or they didn't? It depends on who it was. Murat didn't. Murat huh. didn't know what he was doing huh. with artillery. He couldn't coordinate. Huh. Okay. Some French infantry officers did not know how to operate above the division level because mm-hmm. they had to coordinate different arms. But French uh, artillery doctrine was infantry-artillery cooperation. Mm-hmm. That was their dictum, and that's how they trained Mm-hmm. And that's how the Gribbleville system was designed for a war of maneuver. Mm-hmm. Did um did the artillery teams did they have infantry protecting them to keep them from being overrun? Or... No, the best protection for an artillery unit is, are the guns. Okay, hmm. I mean that that's what that's your force protection. Mm-hmm. They'd be supported by infantry, mm-hmm. or they would support infantry. Mm-hmm. But do they need it for protection? Be nice, but no. I'm not going to say that they would, because there are many places where it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you, if you're an artillery commander, you fight your guns to the last extremity. So what about, um, did they have a mix of artillery in the, in the teams, or was it always like, I forget if you said how, how, how many guns were in a, you know, a unit or an element, you know. A foot artillery battery, which the gunners walked. Mm-hmm usually had six long guns and two howitzers. Okay. Horse artillery, which everybody was mounted, well, this is in the French service, would have four guns and two howitzers or six guns. Okay. And uh, it, what you started with may not be what you end with. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have enough horses to pull them, you can't take them with you. Okay. Devu had to leave some of, it, some of his guns in Mannheim in the 1805 campaign because no horses. Mm-hmm. Was it easy if you had to abandon your guns? Was it easy to destroy them so the enemy didn't get them? Well, you could spike them. Mm-hmm. You take a spike or a big nail and hammer it into the vent, but you can fix that. Mm-hmm. The French left a lot of guns in Russia. Huh. And they they weren't destroyed. And d- does that mean the Russians took them and used them? or Probably not. They took them. Mm-hmm. Whether they used them or not, they would give them to somebody who needed them. 
the uh, some of the French, the Belgian and Dutch pieces at, at the Waterloo campaign were French. Okay. You know, and the French captured thousands of enemy artillery pieces, and they used them. Mm-hmm. You know, the basic artillery piece all they all worked the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there wasn't any special little trigger or anything else in them. But you still had to um, get you, like you said, they all shot a, each piece shot a little differently. So whoever was using them had to sort of get a feel for for the weapon. Yes, and uh, experienced gunners who'd been with the same field piece for a long time knew exactly how it shot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So among the so all the entries was there is there anything particularly? Um, um, you did mention you know we thought you were French, but was there anything else you came across that had? maybe a strong emotional impact on you, either positive or negative. Again, you mentioned some of the stories of the, the devastation. No, that all happened with the first two books. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. This was, uh, cause a lot of what's in the first two books is in this one, just set out logically mm-hmm. instead of mentioned in a chapter. Mm-hmm. At least I hope it's logically. There are no X's. I didn't find anything with an X. <laughs> this was just something I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And the publisher was extremely supportive. Mm-hmm. And I haven't made a deadline yet. <laughs> um, is there, is there, could you, do you think you could do a second volume and fill it with just as much? Nope. Infor- no. This nope. Is- <laughs> That's it. <laughs> this covers it, huh? Well, it's, I, I hope so, because after three years, it better be. Yeah. Yeah. How many entries does it have? A lot. <laughs> I never counted them. Oh, no? No, it's got over 60 tables in the back in mm-hmm. the appendices. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, firing tables, things about ships, all bunch of stuff in the back. Uh, I think data tables are important. Mm-hmm. And one of the really good things about data, mm-hmm. you can't copyright data. Oh, true, true. Yeah. You can't. I mean, uh-uh. But the, the tables, um, you know, you look in an artillery manual, the tables are all through the volume. Mm-hmm. And I just put them all in the back. Okay. Well, one thing I'm curious about, do you have this in the book, the um, penetrating power of your artillery, you know, either into wooden ships or, you know. Into... I think so. Okay. If, if not, it's in the first artillery book. Okay. Okay. Um, like the uniforms are in there, artillery regiments, how they organize themselves from different countries. I've got uh, an entry on artillery battles. Mm-hmm. Or battles where artillery was a, a biggie, mm-hmm. um, sieges. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the entries are ammunition is a really long entry. Ah, yeah. It uh, it's a lot of A's. Oh, really? A lot of A's, S's, and T's. Okay. A lot of B's too and C's. Oh, really? Some, <laughs> yeah. It, some are long, some are short. I mean, it, I was in editorial confusion for about a year mm-hmm. personally. Oh, really? It was, yeah. It just, uh, you have to walk away. Take a breather. Take a break. Yeah. For like a month. Huh. And then go back. Because it, it's just, it must be going okay if you're overwhelming yourself. Oh, is that the rule? Or that? <laughs> I don't know. That's just an idea. I don't have, <laughs> that's not a rule. I always tried to discipline my writing. I wanted to get up every morning at six, write till 10. Mm-hmm. Never worked. I couldn't oh, no. do it. It's just not me. Hmm. Hmm. It's just like at the during the process, at the bottom of each entry, I put sources. 
Mm -hmm. which I had seen before in dictionaries. And the editor said, let's not do that. It makes it too long. I -hmm. said, okay, because we're not doing footnotes. What I do is at the beginning, there's a note on sources and how I did sourcing. Mm -hmm. And then I don't have a bibliography. I have a recommended reading list at the back. Okay. Which has all the stuff I used to write the book. Plus, plus some more. How many entries would you say is in the yeah. recommended reading? Over 200, maybe more than that. Hmm. It's about 16 pages. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's big. It's not just artillery stuff. It's people stuff and memoirs and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, I actually, when I wrote my first book in 2002, we built a library under the house. We did an addition. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that's where I'm sitting now. If you see behind me, that's the paintings. Yeah, yeah. The walls. One one side is all shelves and one side's paintings. In oh, windows. Wow. that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, uh, the cover of the, have you seen the cover of the dictionary? Uh, I, I saw what's on Amazon. Yeah, that that's the original. The, the guy who was doing the cover said, how's this? Mm-hmm. And I said, how about this? And he goes, okay. Yeah. And well, he did the, it's an Austrian six pounder. Mm-hmm. And it's, you get the business end and the side view, which I think was a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Martin Mace is an excellent person to work with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, pen and sword and frontline, all those guys are great. Mm-hmm. And all my publishers have been British. Work with them anytime. As a matter of fact, I'm doing another book right now, yeah. which I'm late on uh, for them. Mm-hmm. And what I really want to do after that one is a dictionary of the Grand Armée. Oh, wow. Okay. But which the current uh, book that you're working on? It's Can the Yena Campaign of 1806. Okay. How to Beat the Prussians in Three Weeks. Uh. <laughs> I think that's Napoleon's best campaign. I was going to ask which uh, which battle you you would you thought you think is the most interesting from an artillery point of view. Friedland. Friedland. Yeah, it was Saint-Armand. Mm-hmm. Um, another one really is there's two more I or have to do with rivers. Mm-hmm. One is Essling in eighteen oh nine seven. No, eighteen oh nine. And uh French artillery was overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. They didn't get enough across the river before the bridges broke. And the other one's the crossing of the Beresina getting out of Russia. Mm-hmm. That is a fascinating battle. They fought and defeated two different Russian armies while they, while they built the bridges to get the army out. Huh. What's the coldest temperature you can, you can effectively use your artillery in? Is there a limit? I don't know. That's a really good question. Hmm. Haven't been there yet. I was actually going to I've also... been in Korea in the winter. In, in the what? I've been in Korea in the winter. Mm-hmm. It is bone chilling cold. I haven't been cold since. <laughs> I think I've heard that before. How cold it when is. You there. wake up in the morning and it's, you know, 20 degrees or minus 10 or whatever it is. And you w- look out to the rice paddy and there's a Korean farmer in the rice paddy barefoot with his pants rolled up planting his rice. That's cold. <laughs> and that's a hard man. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask the same question about humidity and dryness, but maybe you don't have an answer for that either. I don't think you'd have a, I have never read anything about like in Egypt and Syria, Mm -hmm. 
I mean, guns do overheat, but you really got to fire a lot of rounds through them, even those, the old smooth bores. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're not going to have tube group, which is an actual, that's metal fatigue. And that's actually what they call it. Tube. The, tube group, where okay. it gets so hot to go like that. <laughs> that yeah. <laughs> Maybe you want to stop for a bit there. <laughs> no, that's a, that's an actual term. It's the Oh, I mean getting so hot it'll melt. I, I mean it once you see that, once you see your, your artillery drooping. Oh, you stop. Yeah, you you wanna stop. Don't think we can do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe you could turn Another, it upside down and Yeah. <laughs> and shoot up in the air. Yeah. Um one guard artillery battery or company at Waterloo mm -hmm. ran out of ammunition at mm -hmm. the end. And that's when everybody was leaving and then getting chased. Yeah. And the company commander just said, uh-uh, load, but we don't have any bullets. Load. So they went through the motions of loading, and the pursuing British cavalry stopped. Uh. Then they pretended to fire, and there was no bang, and the Brits got mad because they got fooled. Uh. <laughs> hilarious. That's, that's actually, I was also going to ask, what, what did you... What what is the the strangest use of use of artillery in this period that you came across? That one. That was that it. Yeah. It's not strange. It's uh, gutsy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But the uh, I still miss being on a gun line. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's nothing like it. Best job in the world's battery commander. I don't care what anybody says. Oh yeah. Next to dad, being a dad's better. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, not as much noise. Or maybe more. I don't know. Depends. <laughs> so, um, it, did they did they suffer hearing loss and, and that sort of thing back then from being what? artillery? <laughs> did, did those guys? <laughs> yeah, undoubtedly. The especially using the larger pieces mm -hmm. aboard ship. Oh, okay. Sailors would actually take their bandanas off and tie it around their ears, you know, around the head. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, you can go deaf. Mm-hmm. I busted uh, an eardrum once. Oh, did you? Yeah. Does that heal? It heals. Yeah. Okay. Was that an accident? Someone someone fired when they weren't supposed yes. to? And it was mortars. Ah, yeah. I guess someone got a talking to after that? No, because I just didn't. I missed. Oh. You can't wear hearing protection on a gun line. You're supposed to, but you can't. Oh, because... Really? it's a safety violation because you can't hear what's going on. So what we would do is, is if you stand behind the gun line, the guns aren't going to be that loud. Okay. And, um, if they are, you just, but I was a battery commander and the standing battery SOP was gun protection on the gun line or ear protection on the gun line. Mm -hmm. And my artillery chief, who was a master sergeant, mm -hmm. goes, sir, I'm going to work. I said, I know you going to make us? I said, no. <laughs> he goes, what are you going to do? I said, just top, you just get it done. What we have to get done. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we had pictures taken of us on a direct fire shoot on mainland Japan. And he's standing behind one of the guns, with his fingers in his ears. Yeah. So they put that picture in my office and the Colonel walked in there one day and he looked up and he goes, where's his ear protection? I said, Sir, it's in his ears. Yeah. And he just looked at me and then just left. <laughs> That's, uh, well, it seems like it's two conflicting safety requirements, you know? Yeah. 
and one of them has to win out. That was my reasoning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Um, it's fun being the boss, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so ultimately, what do you want people, you know, it's a dictionary of all these terms, um, obviously an excellent reference um, book, but I what else? What what else would you want people to, because um, it seems like it has, you know, again, reading the prologue and such, you know, it has very interesting stories. You know, it's more than just dictionary entries, it seems yeah. like. You know, what would you like a reader or a, someone who take, picks this book up, what would you like them to take away from it? Do more research on your own to find out more stuff. Hmm. If something pricks your interest, mm-hmm. go look it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you familiar with the uh, historian John Elting? No, no, I don't know that name. He wrote uh, Swords Around the Throne, okay. which was, is the definitive organizational history of the Grand Armée. I was lucky enough to know him. Mm-hmm. He taught at West Point for 11 years, wrote a lot of Napoleonic stuff. Mm-hmm. And before I met him, I always, when I read his work, I thought, I need to look that up. Mm-hmm. And I asked him about that, and he goes, yep, that was one of his ideas. Mm-hmm. And he didn't over footnote, which irritates some people. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm not a footnote guy. I mean, you need to, you know, when in doubt, footnote, but you don't need to footnote every phrase, clause, or sentence. Mm-hmm. And you can paraphrase, say, well, this guy said this. You don't need to footnote that. You already gave the credit. And... uh in that book, it's over 700 pages. He's got over 800 footnotes and then a further 500. This guy said this. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, that's well sourced. Mm-hmm. But what it motivated me to do when I, and I hadn't met him yet is I went and bought some of the references in there mm-hmm. and found the stuff. And then he gave me 25 volumes of the old La Sabretage and their books. Mm-hmm. And there's more Napoleonic stuff in those 25 volumes than you shake a stick at. <laughs> it's a lot, I'm sure. Well, about 7,000 pages. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's letters and after-action reports, records of service in a narrative form. And it's just neat stuff. Did um did Napoleon take naval artillery as seriously as he took, you know, army artillery or, or ground yeah. artillery? he did. I mean, he was had a very lively appreciation of naval ability, Mm -hmm. naval superior, you know, whatever it was. Uh, He wasn't a sailor. You know, the intricacies of how a ship's going to get from point A to point B were probably not beyond him because he didn't know it. Mm -hmm. But he wanted shell firing or naval artillery Mm -hmm. aboard ship, Mm -hmm. not just round shot and canister. And he believed in pivot guns. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What about coastal artillery? Again, that same question. Yes. he. Uh, there was a naval artillery arm they, uh, separate from the guys who drove ships. And they were assigned as gun captains aboard ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they manned the coastal fortresses for naval bases. Mm-hmm. And they were the ones that were drawn on in 1813 to, re- to rebuild the French artillery arm. Ah, okay. And there was like 7,000 of them. It was a bunch. Hmm. But good troops. Yeah. They were, he drafted or transferred or whatever you want to call it, 
sailors into the Grand Armée, and they served as engineers, mm-hmm. infantry, artillerymen, artificers, you know, the guys who repaired vehicles. Mm-hmm. And uh, one French admiral became a general and got killed in 1814. I think it was Bast, but I can't be, can't remember. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what. These guys were hard people. Can you imagine campaigning for 20 years? <laughs> no, like hard campaigning. Yeah, I mean, it's, okay, where are we going next year? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They didn't like Spain. No, because of the, the terrain, the heat. The... Heat, terrain, lack of, didn't make a list. Yeah. I mean, even horses were hard to find. Mules were easier. Hmm. They, they just didn't like it. Hmm. Is there, what, what do you think is the, the most important quality of, of an artillery officer at that time. Education and intelligence. Okay. If you're not trained, you're not going to be any good at it. Mm-hmm. There was a, there was some guard artillery officers early in the empire who had not gone to school, but they had learned their profession from the ground up mm-hmm. as enlisted men and then got commissioned. And some people wanted to get rid of them and pull and said, no, they're just as good as you are. They just didn't go to school. They're fine. Mm-hmm. Said, no. <laughs> That's good. Uh, good well, for them. <laughs> OJT. Yeah. On the job training. Yeah. Yeah. Don't knock it. Um, no. This is more general question about um, his historical interest in, in the Napoleonic Wars. You know, some people are very um, motivated and enthused by it. And then other people seem to just like totally – not not be unaware of it, but it just seems like, oh, yeah, the Napoleonic Wars. You know, it's it's an interesting divide, I think, for something that's so historically important. Well, the only thing I can say is having taught for history and math and whatever else for 20 years after I retired from the Marine Corps, I taught middle school, mm-hmm. which is extremely interesting. They're very intelligent. They're absolutely hilarious, and they don't know it, <laughs> is they don't want to read. Mm-hmm. And everything's not on the internet and half of the stuff on the internet is unreliable. Mm-hmm. That's as nice as I can be. Right. Um, if you and I were talking here, I would use some more Marine Corps language. I follow. But, um, one question I always ask my classes every year, what hobbies do you have? And I usually got blank stares and about three people would raise their hand per class. Mm-hmm. And, I would have to explain them that going to the mall is not a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> but I made my uh, eighth graders write term papers. Mm-hmm. They were unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. Tough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're the boss. <laughs> and I never smiled. Uh. <laughs> Works. Yeah. But they were, they're basically like a group of Lance Corporals. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're really hilarious. I mean, they, they come off with the funniest stuff or they do the funniest things. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, 99% are great kids, but you always get that 1% that aren't. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sad more than anything else. Mm-hmm. But so you, do you think it's just not, I guess it's just not uh, publicized enough or just not, not enough in the, um, public imagination maybe like in europe it's big you know the napoleonic wars and well and it's not our stuff right right but, but yes it is because of the quasi war with france mm-hmm. and the war of 1812 and the war of 1812 is a napoleonic war mm-hmm. yeah a lot of people don't believe that but it is mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Most of the army's influence was French. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. But like you say, it's not, it wasn't here. So yeah. Well, they blow off the war of 1812 too. That's true. That's true. That one, and that's really interesting. War, the first artillery battle in U.S. history was New Orleans. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's fascinating stuff, but um, yeah, but people seem to forget it exists. Um, It's a shame, actually. I mean, it's it's better than fiction. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You Uh, couldn't make this stuff up. No, no, and there's so much to learn. Um, You can just keep digging and digging and never reach the end. Well, the other part of it is there's so much that's just not true that keeps getting, hmm. you know, Napoleon was short. No, he wasn't. Mm-hmm. He was average height. See, the and it goes with no artillery, too, because, yeah, you have a pound, but is it a British pound, a French pound, an Austrian pound, or a Prussian pound? They're all different weights. Hmm. Okay. A French eight-pounder is almost an English nine-pounder. Okay. And then the French foot is three quarters of an inch longer than the British foot. Hmm. So in French feet, Napoleon was five foot two. In English feet, he's five foot six and a half. And that was average height for a man in that period. Okay. Okay. That's interesting stuff. So he wasn't little. Right. Right. But the British, there's a book out now. I don't. I have it, but I don't know where it is. It's on British propaganda, the period. Mm-hmm. And uh, people still use that as a reference for what Napoleon was like. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's just not it. It doesn't cut it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Napoleon the reformer is more important than his military achievements. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's funny how much Russia celebrates their victories over Napoleon. Um, when in fact they, they sort of, their Russian revolution adopts like his, you know, his, some of his reforms, you know, it's like current, current Russians are more, would be more amenable to what he was doing, you know, than the Russians he was fighting at the time. And yet they celebrate his defeat and how evil he was. Hmm. Yeah. Alexander was in on murdering his father, but we won't go there. That's yeah. okay. <laughs> Um, he didn't take part in it, but he knew about it and said, go ahead. Mm-hmm. The main reason I think that he was steadfast in 1812 is he didn't want to end up like his dad. How so? If he'd have surrendered or made a peace treaty with Napoleon while the French were on Russian soil, they'd have done him in. They'd have killed him. Uh, uh, his people would have. Yeah. The people yeah. or the nobles? Yes. Both. The nobles. The nobles. The this is going to sound awful, but the Russian people don't have a say. Yeah. They never have. You can't take a totalitarian political system and all of a sudden introduce democracy. Yeah. It doesn't do that. That's one of the reasons the French and the revolution had a problem because they went from monarchy to basically anarchy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was bad. Mm-hmm. There was no money. There were roving bandits in the countryside. Mm-hmm. People weren't paying their taxes. Mm-hmm. And when Napoleon took over, he fixed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I'm... he maintained the social gains of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that period simply because of that, what you just described, the complete chaos and anarchy. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, and then they become this great empire like years later, you know. Um, well, you know, the, the word empire is interesting because at that period, empire and nation were synonymous. Oh, okay. Hmm. So, so he was creating the nation, a nation made up of nations. Or... Well, the nation was there, mm-hmm. the French nation. Mm-hmm. But it was, the Bourbons were not the best. I mean, the last good king was Louis the Fourteenth, and he was too much attached to war. And uh, there's, a, if you read Cronin's biography of Napoleon, no, the anti-Napoleon crowd doesn't like it. They say it's hagiography. Well, it's it's an excellent book. Mm-hmm. It was written in seventy-two, or published. And there's a story in there of a French nobleman comes home, mm-hmm. and he goes upstairs. And his wife's in bed with the bishop. He kind of looks at it, walks over to the window, and starts blessing everybody in the street. The bishop goes, what do you think you're doing? And he goes, well, you're performing my office. I might as well perform yours. <laughs> but the church had too much power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was corrupt. Yeah. I hmm. mean, there's a reason that Napoleon threw the pope into prison. Yeah. And it actually was a retirement. It really wasn't prison. But... The Pope had the last Inquisition in Europe, in Rome, and the last Jewish ghetto, mm-hmm. which Napoleon abolished. Huh, interesting. And then in 1814, when the Pope came back, it was reinstituted. Hmm, yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah, like you say, what Napoleon did is pretty, very interesting and very impressive. But um, it's weird how we kind of, a lot of people look back in time now to then, and start to reinterpret and, and just come up well, with... Well, they say, well, he was an emperor, yes. He had people executed, yes. So did everybody else. Yeah. But uh, when I say something like, well, I consider Napoleon the good guy in the period, they go, what? He was a <laughs> dictator. I said, no, not really. He was an emperor. Mm-hmm. And he, if you want to get real technical, he was a constitutional monarch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's yeah. It's, I, I generally like Napoleon as well. Um, so, so where it can people find, well, I was going to ask if people can find you online or social media, but I imagine <laughs> I don't do Facebook. <laughs> I just don't do that. Yeah. So people can find information on the book, I guess, on the publisher's website and on Amazon. It's on Amazon. Yeah. And I guess all your works are listed, um, can be found there as well. Yeah. I did three uniform books for, uh, NS. The, which was an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. The uh, I was contacted and said, will you do one on the American Revolution? I said, sure. And they had a specific format, and they commissioned artists to do the uniform information that you supply. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did, did four. One isn't published yet. American Revolution, Wars of the 19th Century, and uh, Rome. Mm-hmm. And uh, excellent editor. She was absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. Smart, intelligent, that's redundant. Open to discussion. Okay. Like in the 19th century, I convinced her we had to have two chapters on the Civil War for uniforms, one blue and one gray. Mm-hmm. She goes, is there more than those colors? I said, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Got plenty of room. But they commissioned about 500 works of art for each book. Wow. Who published that? N.S. N.S. A-N-N-E-S-S. N.S. Okay, okay. And uh, the Romans was the most fun. And that surprised me because the revolution is my second favorite period. Mm-hmm. But uh, I 
told the editor, I said, we need to do the Eastern Romans. Mm-hmm. And she goes, okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's no such thing as a Byzantine empire. So I've, I've heard some of the discussions about that. So, so yeah. tell me what Eastern Roman empire, mm-hmm. the Byzant the Byzantine empire was invented by a German historian in the 16th century after Constantinople had fallen. Ah, okay. They never referred to themselves as that. Okay. They always considered themselves Romans, mm-hmm. which I think is just fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. But that took me a long time to do. I had to do a lot of reading. That must be fun reading, though. I mean, that's... Uh... Adrian Goldsworthy is the best author on the Romans I've read. I, I'm familiar with him, yeah. He's really good. Yeah. And he writes well. I mean, you can be a good historian and not be able to write worth a flip. Yeah, yeah. He's both. John Elting was both. He knew how to write. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, <laughs> when you get the book and read it, mm-hmm. or take a look, let me know what you think. Okay, I'll do that. I, I'd be really, you know, just be honest. Okay, yeah, no problem. I, I don't mind being I don't honest. Do, I don't do flattery well. If you like it, good. If you don't, that's fine. And if you find something I should have changed, let me know. I'll do that. I'll my do first that. my first artillery book, Pen and Sword, reprinted. It's mm-hmm. been done twice now. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was shocked. So do you um do you just basically submit proposals for books and pretty much get them accepted or No, I had to have a reputation first. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the editors at Greenhill had noticed my book reviews on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And he's the one I asked about, you know, doing the first artillery book. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want to do one on the Gribbleville system. He goes, nope. If you're going to do one, it's everybody. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. I didn't have anything on the Russians. I had nothing on the Prussians yet. British and French, I was good to go. But I still started collecting. Mm-hmm. But uh, but, Russians are odd. Odd. But, but did you say you had written before that, though? Before that artillery book, you had published just stuff. just book reviews on Amazon. Huh. Okay. Okay. So that what you were talking about those four other books with the Ness that, that was, was after artillery. Okay. Okay. So at that point, you had your reputation set. Basically, you had an easier time of of submitting proposals, or people reached out to you. More like submitting. Just like after um, our, the second artillery book, mm-hmm. the editor at Penn and Sword goes, okay, what's next? And I thought, God, can I take a breath? <laughs> I didn't tell him that. Okay. Um, then it was the artillery dictionary. Mm-hmm. Okay. But uh, I just had a uh, – Hellion just came out with a book. You know, It's an anthology from different authors for chapters mm-hmm. on the Napoleonic period, and I did one for that. Okay. And then Pen and Sword asked me, they were republishing the Napoleon options. Have you heard of that? No. It's what could have happened. Oh, okay. So uh, he asked me, you want to, we're going to redo it. We're going to, you want to do another one? I said, sure. Mm-hmm. Sounds fun. You know, doing alternate history is actually harder because you got to make sure you actually know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> before you want to change it because it's got to be plausible and fit. Yeah. Yeah. So I've done uh, three alternate history chapters now. That's cool stuff. But um, I don't, I feel like I've been, I've kept you for a while. So I'm just going to, I'm going to wrap this up now because <laughs> I've been talking to you forever and having technical problems. 
but mostly talking, mostly talking. Well, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, yeah, me too. But yeah, I don't have any more questions. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? Not really. If you're interested, go find something and read it. Yeah. It, if the subject is there in history, you can either find it in writing or ask somebody to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I did the artillery books because I'm an artilleryman and it wasn't covered much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just went out and did it. Yeah. It's uh, extremely rewarding. Oh, I'm sure. I'm monetarily, sure. monetarily, no. You can't support a family on it because it's it's a niche. You have to have a job. Mm-hmm. Or be retired. Yes, twice. Yeah, yeah. I'll right. be 69 this year. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. I okay. told you I was old. Well, you still um, have plenty of writing years left. I hope so. <laughs> I want to actually, they said they would publish one because they've done it before, but I want to do one on my toy soldier collection. Oh, wow. I have a 10,000-piece collection. Wow, that's a nice size yeah, collection. Half of them are old Britons. Oh, yeah? Yeah, the antiques. There's um, some really good authors writing today. John, or Jack Gill, mm-hmm. is excellent. Mm-hmm. He's the uh, authority on the 1809 campaign. He's really good. Mm-hmm. Who else did I... You know, you know all these guy names, and then you forget it when you're trying to. We guy know. Dempsey's another one. Okay. Who's excellent? Mm-hmm. You know, only problem is a lot of them are dead. Hmm. I think Peter Perret is still alive. Peter, but I'm not sure. Perret. Peter Perret. Yeah, he's from Stanford. Excellent. He wrote one on uh, the Prussian Reform period. But uh, there's there's just a ton of stuff that you can find. I mean, half of my shelving is Napoleonic. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other half is, you know, civil war, revolution, and whatever else. Yeah. Naval warfare. Yeah. Well, I love the, um, you know, the, the Aubrey and Maturin series and Hornblower and, and some of the, uh, you know, who I like is Bolitho. I like, yeah, I was about to say that the third one. Yeah. I just redid it and bought the whole series except for a couple. Yeah. And rewrote them. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the three that I, those series, those three are great. I could never get into C.S. Forrester. I I thought I couldn't enjoy Hornblower, but I started reading it and I got hooked. So did you see the movie? The fuck. Gregory Peck is Gregory I, Peck is Captain Horatio Hornblower. No, I haven't seen that one. I I know about it, but I haven't seen it. It is excellent. Oh yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll check it out. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth it. It was made in England. Yeah. Okay. From what I understand. I'll give you one last story if you don't mind. Sure. Sure. When I was doing research for the Roman book, I came mm-hmm. across this story about uh, a Roman centurion in the first century A.D., mm-hmm. and it gave his nickname. Okay. The troops called him Bring Another. <laughs> okay. Well, the vine stick, about, you know, yay long, mm-hmm. was the symbol of authority and also for corporal punishment. Mm-hmm. But he'd get so angry at somebody, he'd actually break his vine stick over somebody, mm-hmm. and he'd turn around to his orderly and go, Bring Another. That's <laughs> absolutely hilarious. Yeah. That's, um, the, Marine, the Marine Corps used to carry swagger sticks. Did you know that? I, I didn't know it as a, as a thing that was done. Yeah. Staff NCOs and officers, junior officers would carry one. Mm-hmm. And they stopped it 
because the staff NCOs that go into ranks, and if the wrist wasn't turned in properly, they'd whack it with their swagger stick. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tempting thing to use. What else was it for? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. If you have a stick, why why else do you have a stick with you? Yeah. You give me a stick, I'm going to use it. (laughs) Yeah. That's, I understand why they, they quit doing, letting them do that. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Well, it's changed a lot since I was in. Oh, I retired in uh, 93. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I was a battery commander now, mm-hmm. doing the stuff I did when I was a battery commander, I'd be in jail. In jail? Huh. Oh, yeah. Huh. Wow. <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> they were good old days. <laughs> um, but anyways. All right. Well, um, yeah. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me. Sure. Thanks for asking. In the next episode, I speak with Jack Jacobs, Colonel U.S. Army, retired, about the Vietnam War and his Medal of Honor. Bullseye the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter at Chris Alvarez War Scholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com, and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.